Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 402 of the podcast. My name is Kerry Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. I have been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. Today, we have Mike Arietta, and he talks about a rapid rise in his leadership career, uh, rapid and sustained growth, lessons from Silicon Valley, and the pitfalls of success. I'm going to be talking a little bit more about that at the end of the podcast in the What I'm Thinking About segment, signs your character may be exploding. Um, Mike and I talk about that, and it's something he has addressed in his own life and I have addressed in my life and so we'll talk about that, and today's episode is brought to you by Generis. You can schedule your complimentary generosity discovery session today at generis.com forward slash carry, and by ServeHQ, go to servehq.church to sign up for your free 14-day trial and use the code carry C-A-R-E-Y, to get 10% off for life. So, wow, I got to tell you, thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you for those of you who are leaving ratings and reviews. That means an awful lot uh, when you do that. I'm very grateful. want to thank Marky Mark for leaving a uh, review. Yeah, Mark Wahlberg. I, I don't think it's the same Mark Wahlberg. But anyway, um, <laughs> Marky, Mark, you said, uh, Carrie always seems to read my mail. It's amazing the amount of times I've started an episode. It's just what I'm needing to process through the week. Carries a gift to leaders, especially younger ones like myself. I don't subscribe to many podcasts, but I listen to this one each week without fail. Thank you so much, Mark. I'm really grateful for that and very excited about all the young leaders who are listening as well. Very thankful for you. And yeah, I try to bring you subjects that I'm interested in. And I'm interested in growth. I'm interested in expansion. I'm interested in character. I'm interested in sometimes the meta of leadership and the micro of leadership. And if that's reading your mail... Uh, that makes me really, really happy to be able to do that. Hey, just so you know, too, we always talk about this at the end. We have transcripts and show notes, so you can find everything that you want for today over at carrynewhoff.com. I've got a lot there, but if you go to carrynewhoff.com forward slash episode 402, you will find uh, notes, shareables, and also some transcripts, and they're all free thanks to our partners. Speaking of which, it seems at this point to all be aligning to the point where we are going to be open and in the post-pandemic era this fall. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. But are you ready for that? That's a big question, right? Well, Generis would love to help you get ready for that. What is your fall going to look like? Uh, if your ideal fall includes welcoming your church back fully, expanding your ministry, doubling down on online, and continuing to move your vision forward, then it's time to begin planning a generosity initiative now. Our friends at Generis have partnered with churches for over three decades to help them create a culture of generosity and fund their mission. What they have seen over the past year affirmed what they've always known to be true. If your church develops a thriving culture of generosity, you're going to be okay no matter what happens with the economy. So now is the time to fortify your culture of generosity and lay the foundation for a strong fall 2021. You can schedule a complimentary discovery session today at generis.com forward slash carry. That's G-E-N-E-R-I-S dot com forward slash carry. And imagine having one tool to onboard new volunteers automatically, making sure they're ready to serve. But the same tool can be used for your church's membership process or for leadership development or for volunteer team communication or building an online ministry school and a whole lot more. That is what Serve HQ does. 
ServeHQ helps churches by providing a powerful and simple-to-use online training experience, a new approach to digital messaging, and an automated step-by-step follow-up tool. They've helped over 2,000 churches since 2015. Their training library boosts 800 done-for-you videos, and they are the one unified tool you can use to engage your volunteers, members, and leaders effectively no matter what the future holds. So go to servehq.church to learn more and start your free 14-day trial now. And you can use the code CARRY to get 10% off for life. That's C-A-R-E-Y. Use that at servehq.church. Now, a little bit more about my guest. So Michael Arietta is a private equity investor, venture capitalist, and former technology entrepreneur. He currently serves as founder and CEO of Garden City, a purpose-driven buyout holding company that buys, grows, and forever holds service companies across the Southeast. So he is also voted in 2016 as one of Forbes 30 under 30 for his social entrepreneurship. He was an early employee at DocuSign, where he served as global vice president, general manager, and chief of staff to the CEO. Uh, DocuSign, by the way, now has a $40 billion market cap. In 2016, he founded Mav Adventures, a venture capital group that has invested in over 20 hyper-growth companies, ranging from technology to healthcare. He's also a co-founder of New Story, a nonprofit that has built 2,000 new homes in developing countries and is known for creating the world's first 3D home printer. I saw that uh, up close at South by Southwest a couple of years ago. Insane. And uh, he's a great guy, also a listener. So Pat Gelsinger, who was a former guest, now the new CEO of Intel, introduced Mike and I. And so it's been great to get to know Mike. And I can't wait for you to hear my conversation with Michael Arietta. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Gary. Super fired up to be on it. Yeah, this was fun because we got introduced by a past guest. Uh, and yet uh, I found out you're also a listener, which is fun. Nice to have listeners who we get to turn the microphone on. And you got a fascinating story and fascinating leadership journey. So really excited. Yeah, absolutely. I've listened to a lot of your episodes and have been a uh, loyal fan. And I share it to many people. Uh, So I love what you're putting out there. Hopefully this could be another episode that impacts others. Well, and um, you've had a fascinating life. So you're how old right now as we're doing this interview? Uh, when this goes out, I'll probably be 32. So I'll turn 32 next month. Okay. So barely 32, which is, which is amazing. Um, but you came from a very tough background, um, working poor, great parents, but just not a whole lot of, uh, money in your background. And tell us about Cutco knives because your life changed when you were a teenager with, Cutco Knives, and that kind of launched a trajectory that has defined your last 15-ish years. So do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. My father got sick when I was in my teens, and at 17, um, I felt the call to help provide for my family and lighten the burden. And so a friend told me about Cutco Knives, um, and they said I could make a good career for myself or make a lot of money. And so I, I was forced to grow up faster than other people. I started selling Cutco Knives. Woke up at the crack of dawn every morning, started making cold calls, asked the teachers to go to the bathroom during class, sat outside of the lunchroom, made cold calls. Um, and I became one of the top salespeople in Cutco's history. Um, yeah, in their history at 17. So you got like 40-year-olds who are selling Cutco knives too, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was about, um, from what I understand, five to 10,000 people per year that sell Cutco knives. And at 17, you become one of their top salespeople. 
at 17, I, yeah, that year I was the number one salesperson in the company. Yeah, in 17. And so um, I just learned how to build the, and run a true business. So while other friends were playing high school sports and, and Xbox, right, I was learning how to build pipeline and building cold call scripts and how to build rapport with people and, and do a sales pitch and negotiate and get referrals and learn how to do time management and facing objections. And, you know, just like people say that a child like Justin Bieber, when he faces such difficulties because he started his career at such a young age, I think the same went for me, right? I started my career at such a young age, started making six figures in high school and gold and glory really became my God and my identity. Hmm. Man, there's so many places I could go. I want to ask you, how did you, how did you teach yourself at 17? Like, how do you learn that stuff? A lot of 35-year-olds have trouble trying to figure out how to build a sales funnel. A lot of 55-year-olds have trouble figuring that stuff out. How did you teach yourself? Or did they teach you? Or what did that look like? I think it was a plethora of a lot of things. Um, one was my father was a salesperson. So, okay. um, so he, I saw it firsthand. Um, I, now, I never got to see his skills at work in terms of how to negotiate and build rapport and all that. Um, but I did see the work ethic and the perseverance and the grit and the hustle. And so um, I, I knew or I believed that in order to be good at anything, it's going to take a lot of effort. So I probably got that from him. Um, I was surrounded by a lot of books. So I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I read um, other sort of sales books like, like Zig Ziglar and anything I get my hands on that was available at that time. Um, I was always very, very meticulous and relentless at being surrounded by the best people in the company. Hmm. So I would reach out to the prior salespeople that were always number one, and I would just say, can you teach me? You know, And many times when you ask people, can I just come alongside and can you teach me? They many times say, of course, I'm willing to do that. Right? Um, and then probably lastly is um, I had to. I had to succeed. Right? We had no other option. So when your back's against the wall, that's when your true color show. So um, probably a, mix, a mixture of all of that. So you obviously had a lot of yeses, but I'm always curious because if, if you look at one of the themes for a lot of our guests, there had to be some no's along the way. I imagine you didn't close every sale. As a 17-year-old, how did you handle the no's when they came your way, the limits? My manager got me into a mindset that she made me obsessed with no's. I mean, we would celebrate no's. I mean, it would be high. Really? Five. Okay. I knew there was something there just intuitively, but I, tell me more. It was amazing. It really was. So, I mean, I remember I gave a keynote once at an annual conference at Cutco and I started off by saying, I guarantee you by all the money I've made this year that I have had more people hung up on me not show or say no to me than anyone in this room. So I've experienced failure this year more than anyone in the room, yet I was still the number one salesperson. And so it was this whole mindset that, again, going back to my manager, that she taught me that Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant, she could guarantee has missed more shots than anyone on the planet. Hmm. It's simply because they've taken more attempts. But right. naturally, obviously, their conversion is going to go higher, but they've taken so many attempts and they've mastered the skills so well that their mindset is becoming obsessed with failure because failure is an equation to success, right? And so I would know that if I had eight no's, that would average out to two yeses, right? And so it was just all a numbers game. And I still treat it like that even today. 
Isn't that fascinating? You know, that is a pattern of early success for a lot of people. I'm thinking about Ryan Hawk, who was a previous guest. We'll link to him in the show notes. And he had the tough job when his football career didn't work out of having to sell LexisNexis cold. I think that's, it's a legal product. I'm pretty sure that was his brand. And he's like a whole bunch of no's, right? And that actually made him one of the most successful people in his 30s that you'd want to meet. Interesting. How did you not, was it your manager? Like, how did that not get into your head? Oh, it definitely gets into your head. That's why it's so critical having good coaches, right? Hmm. Um, For me, I mean, I grew up with low income. I was overweight, Spanish, very bad stutter. I was on disability, right? So in my mind, I've always had a lot of these little boy complexes, right? And so I was always just trying to prove myself, prove myself. And so when I got to know, it really rocked me, right? Hmm. Um, But along the way, what you realize, one of two things. One is that uh, not everyone has to say yes, right? So that's just fact. Not everyone has to say yes. So failure is okay, right? It's okay to take a couple strikeouts. So that's just the fact of it. And the second thing was, uh, and this is more of the relentlessness in me, is when I got a no, I would do everything in my power to convert it to a yes. Mm. Um, so I would, um, I would just not lose hope on the no, I guess is the premise of it. How would you do that? If I tell you no, how do you change that into a yes? I would just try to understand why, you know, so, so even now with my current company and we have investors, right? Um, when I speak to some investors and they're just like, no, I'm not interested in investing. I'm just like, okay, that's totally fine. I'm just curious why. And when you keep asking why, oh, that's interesting. Why? Oh, tell me more, right? They'll quickly tell you something that may have been misconstrued or misunderstood, right? It's, they misunderstood what you were trying to portray to them. So many times my investors would say something that I would say, oh, no, 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 that's not that's not our model. That's maybe what you would think in a private equity model. That's the opposite of our model. And they go, oh, really? And so the more and more and more that you try to understand the true root cause of why they're saying no, right? The higher likelihood that there is to a yes, right? And if it should be a no, then it should be a no. So a lot of times I would have people tell me while selling Cutco Knives, I'll be completely honest with you. We are in a very difficult financial situation. We're in debt up to our eyeballs. My husband just lost our job. And I would say, I completely understand. And here's, here's a knife or here's a scissors just to remember me, right? And so when you just ask the why, ask the why. And what that does, that builds trust. And then later, when you ask for recommendations, referrals, now that you built a relationship with them, right? They want to help you support what you're doing. And they'll never right? forget that knife. Even if it was a $20 knife or a $30 pair of scissors or whatever, I don't know how much that stuff costs, but like, they'll never forget that. I remember when I was single and I was dating and courting around and I would uh, be dating girls and, you know, I got a lot of no's, right? <laughs> and, and and I would just bring Cutco straight into school, into, into my university. And, and if I would ask a girl on a date and she would say no, I'd say why, you know, why, why, why? And I was always find out the true reason why, right? And so I would never just take a no and walk away. Isn't that great? Yeah, you, uh, so you mentioned you were overweight. And I know when we talked about it, when we first met, you'd mentioned that. I would say you're thin. Like you're not just like, oh yeah, I lost 20 pounds. Like you, you look fit, you look thin. When did that happen? How did that happen? Why did that happen? Um, how did that happen? I grew up in a Puerto Rican family that my family used to feed me rice and beans and anything <laughs> else and five servings of it because to my mother, food is love. So that's how it happened. I guess I meant it the other way. How did you decide to, because as somebody who's always been like, boy, I should lose five pounds, 10 pounds. I'm just curious how you lost the weight more than anything. 
I remember reading this book by Matthew Kelly. Um, and the first line in the book is everything in life is a choice. Mm. And that rocked me when I was a young kid. I think I was probably 14 or 15 years old at that point. And I was just like, okay, it's a choice. And so I said, what kind of, let's start backwards. If I want to be 170 pounds, what has to be true? It's like, well, I have to work out and I have to eat good. And it was more of a lifestyle change. And so I just made the decision and just, I reverse engineered it. And I just said, okay, I'm going to stop eating bad. I'm going to get on the treadmill every day. And that's just what I did. It wasn't much more to it. You know, it just became a lifestyle. And so now, you know, many years later, yeah, I'm probably 175 pounds and uh, it's just a lifestyle. It's not a diet. How old were you when you made that decision? Probably about 13 or 14. Yeah, good for you. Good for you. So there's a profile here. Lots of success. You had a lot of money, six, seven figures-ish by the time you were what? How old? Uh, I was making six figures ever since I was 17. I made my first seven figures um, there in my mid-20s. Wow. Wow. And like so many headlines, it almost ruined you early success, right? Almost took you under. Do you want to walk us through what happened? What does that kind of income, options, success, fame, you're speaking across the country, you're being profiled. What did that do to you? And like what happened? Yeah, I mean, the positive impact of that early on success was that I was able to ease a financial burden on my family. And I was blessed enough to discover my God-given ability of networking with others and selling at a young age, which I believe there's a beauty in sales Hmm. if you go about it a redemptive uh, way, Um, which I know many in their 40s and 50s that have yet to discover their God-given ability. So I thank God every day that he put me into that situation where I was forced to figure out what it was that I was naturally skilled at. Hmm. So uh, that was a positive thing. On the negative part of having that early on success um, was that I was my own God, right? Someone recently asked me when it's the most difficult to trust, need, and rely on God. And I quickly answered, when everything is going well from the outside and you're experiencing worldly success, right? Because you don't need God if you have the money, if you have the connections, if you have the resources. So it became a pursuit of pride, pleasure, and possessions, right? Mm. Which ultimately became just a never-ending spiral of dissatisfaction. Right? So once you have that fancy car you've always wanted, or once you could travel to those fancy places internationally that you've only seen online, and once you've stood on the stage at delivering the keynotes to thousands of people, you, you, know, you realize that you, we all have this God-sized hole in us that none of those things in this world could fill, right? that there has to be something more fulfilling and purposeful. Wow. And you've been around a lot of successful people and you've seen the good and the bad and the ugly with successful people. What what did you see? Because you ended up working with, uh, and I don't know that you want to name names or whatever, but with like some very successful people whose names we would know. And you saw the shadow side of success as well. What what did you see, uh, you know, when you were in your 20s and getting up in, into those circles? Because uh, I saw, I feel like I saw some of that in law in downtown Toronto for the year I worked in law and I saw some of the most successful people in the country making ridiculous amounts of money. And on the inside, it was like exactly what you said. They weren't, they weren't happy. And what did you see in your journey? That was the same exact thing that I saw. Yeah. was from the outside in, I mean, I, um, I worked directly for, for a couple billionaires, um, that we all know their names and, um, or many of us know their names. 
And from the outside in, I was I was blown away that I had the opportunity to be their right hand person, right? Their chief of staff. And I remember just bragging about it to my now wife or my mother, father, best friends, and so forth. And then once you're there for a week, a month, a year, five years, you realize when you get up close and personal, it's it's not all that it's it's not all that it's fanned out to be, you know, that it's made out to be. Um, there's a lot of a lot of messiness there. There's a lot of brokenness there. There's, there's a lot of emptiness there. Someone recently told me, if you look at someone, they're wildly, wildly successful. The first question that you should ask yourself is, what is it that is truly driving that? Mm. Right? What is it that is truly driving that? And so um, I just got an up-close view that these families, many times, of uh, these leaders were not being well cared for, that the wives were not spending a lot of time with their husbands that they were the first ones in there and the last ones out, that their health was going down the drain, that they were not very generous, right? That there was not a lot of joy. Right? All these things that I saw that I said, I don't want that, right? Um, those, were, those were the bad things that, you know, don't make the cover of Business Insider or Wall Street <laughs> Journal, right? Um, and then, of course, the good things about them is there's many great things about them and how they build companies and scale and care for people at their companies and great investors and um, all of that great things, you know. But in terms of what matters most at the end of our lives when we're in the rocking chair in the 80s and 90s, right, I learned a lot of what I don't want. Hmm. What would you, because this is a question that really haunts me too. I, I would characterize myself as a driven person. And one of the questions you have to ask is like, okay, what does drive you? Yeah. What would you say was driving you in your teens and early 20s? And how is that different from what you would say is driving you now? Yeah, I wanted to prove myself that I mattered. I wanted mm -hmm. to prove myself that I was worthy, that I wasn't this overweight, stuttering kid on disability that his parents went to private school because the only way I'm there is on disability and we have one hubcap with no air conditioning. I wanted people to respect me. I wanted to be admired. I wanted to be um, just, just looked at for my accomplishments. And so I would run through a brick wall regardless of what shattered around me just to get the approval of others, right? Which is just this, it's, it's the saddest thing ever because it never stops. You're never satisfied and you're just running on margin and those around you are just seeing you disintegrate before their very own eyes, right? Um, and so that's what was driving me was this little child boy insecurities uh, that haunt you until you really have someone, I believe, usher you through your deepest insecurities. And they help you rebuild your foundation from sand to rock, right? Um, that's what radically changed my story. How did that happen? That pivot, that change? Uh, yeah, there were a couple of things. Um, when we sold our first company to Dell, um, the money hit my bank account, and I thought that was going to be a euphoria, <laughs> and nothing changed at that moment. All the change is a different number on your Chase app, right? So you and had built was, a new company after you left Cutco and then sold it to Dell? Correct. That's correct. So I was part of a new startup, and we sold that to Dell. Um, and so, uh, when that happened, I was like, ah, oh, when that happens, my parents get a new house, we get a new house. You know, that's when, that's when I just kick my feet back. I'm just so happy. And then it happens. You're just like, man, the hole just got bigger, you know? Wow. And this whole thing in my mind is you're not enough. You're not enough. Take more control, right? Take more control, be busier, meet more people. Right. Um, just, I mean, think about the future. Don't be present. Right. 
uh, perform, 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 be a machine, prove yourself, right? All of these things it just never stops. And it's like this talk show in your head that just never turns on, right? It's a hamster on the wheel that's just going to die on that wheel. And so the way that I um, got well was um, one of my best friends, Brett Hagler, the CEO and my co-founder of News Story, he invited me to Haiti. And um, that's where I just had a new profound faith in Jesus. And I just stopped following my last way of life and I just started following him. Um, and, and that just allowed me down this journey of just saying, who is this man named Jesus? What does he say about me? How did he walk? How did he live? What is it that he believed? And let me start living and acting more like that. And so I've done um, just a lot of things. Just I've done, I do some silent retreats every year and I just get still, which for someone like me that's so hyper at all times, mm. going, 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 getting those healthy rhythms are really important. Um, spiritual direction, counseling. It's silly that we see all these football players and athletes and musicians. They have so many coaches. Yet we look at ourselves and we don't have any. I mean, it's the most unbelievable thing. And so I look at my life and I say, I need a spiritual coach. I need a business coach. I need a family coach. I need a marital coach, right? And so by getting a lot of that help, um, I'm on this path of sanctification and just becoming a healthier version of myself. Just a quick note to leaders, those of you who don't know Brett Hagler, he'll be on the show at some point. I met him uh, oh, a couple of years ago and we got together at South by Southwest 2019 he does some incredible work at News Story, so uh, you'll hear from him. It's 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 really really cool. So that is a massive change, and you do have some ministry leaders listening, and they're like, "Wow, that's what I hope for. That's what I pray for. Like that's what you want to see in your church. That's what you want to see in people's lives." Sometimes a value set doesn't change that quickly. Like I feel like for what sounds like happened in a couple of years for you, I've been like decades in the making, like redeeming those motivations and 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 all that. Uh, any thoughts on on why that change or how that change became relatively rapid for you? Yeah, I, I mean, I hate to say it because this is not going to relate to probably the majority of listeners, but for me, I heard the true gospel. And I experienced the true gospel um, in 2013, and it radically changed everything. And I just naturally told myself, if this is the truth, then I'm going all in. If it's not, I'm just going to keep living all in the way I'm already doing, right? Wow. And so, um, so I kind of wish, because I just went to a, to, to, a, to a retreat in Colorado, as you know, Carrie, uh, last week. And there's many people there that they grew up in the church. And it's just sad to see how the gospel story and the power of Jesus kind of just, it just, it's like, yeah, I've heard that forever. You know, I know, I know, you know, that his burden's light, right? I know that he's the living water and I won't thirst no longer, right? And, and, and everything else, right? And that he's the way and the truth, everything, uh, you know, but, but what other book can I read or, or what else mm. can I do? And for me, when I experienced it, I was like, oh my goodness, this is like, gold. I'm all in. Nothing else matters. You know, like, like I'm, I'm all in. So I kind of wish that nobody heard the gospel until they truly experienced living the world for like 20 or 30 years, because if they did, they, I think there would be a lot higher probability that they would just be so all in and sold out. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And you know, I wonder if a brush with success 
And I more saw it than experienced it in that year in law. But being in those bank towers, those office towers in our financial center for my country, Canada, and seeing the poverty as you saw, you know, when you met some of the people who make headlines and it's like, oh, it's not what it seems like from the outside. That was like a slap in the face for me, Mike. And it was like this gospel thing is something utterly different and it made it easier to walk away. Right. It is the number one, number one summary of, I love that you said the poverty of call it the C-suite or the poverty of the ultra rich, right? Mm. The number one uh, verse that I love is for what good is it to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? I mean, that, that is, that is, yeah. that is it. And we could just stop that entire conversation there because that verse is so spot on for what good is it for a man to gain the whole world, enter the name here, mm-hmm. and forfeit his soul. Mm-hmm. Right, and you. so once you experience that, you're just like, all right, I don't need the whole world. I just want to focus on the soul. <laughs> so here's what's interesting. All right, you had a set of drivers as a child and a teenager that made you radically successful at 17 into your mid 20s. You had this massive life change that happened as a result of you know, this this meeting of Jesus, going going to that trip in Haiti, radical life change, but you're still driven. I mean, we're going to talk about your journey from your startup to Dell to DocuSign to your new venture. And, you know, that's a lot of miles in, in just a few years, right? In in seven or eight years. That's a lot of a lot of change. What would you say drives you now? Like how has that drivenness been redeemed? Because you're still starting things. You're still very driven. What's, what's the difference? Absolutely. I read a book by actually the gentleman that introduced you and I, Pat Gelsinger, yeah, CEO yeah. of VMware. He wrote a book a long time ago called The Juggling Act, How to Balance Your Family, Faith, and Work. Um, and in one of the early chapters, he highly encourages all the readers to create a life mission statement for their life. Mm. Um, and so I did that years ago, and that's what drives me. And so mine, I know mine, I think about it probably weekly. Um, is Mike Arietta is a faithful son of God, knowing there's nothing more I can do to earn his love. I'm a faithful and loving husband to my wife. I'm a present and engaged father to my kids. I'm a loving family member, and I strive to make an internal and I strive to make an eternal impact on the world around me. And so that's what drives me is I just want to be a, a son. I want to be a husband. I want to be a father, and I want to strive to make a eternal impact on the world around me. I like that. So I would encourage <laughs> I people, that. you know, if you don't know where you're trying to go, it's impossible to get there, right? <laughs> so um, set that destination very, very clearly, right? It doesn't have to be perfect. And then everything else steers it. So sometimes I ask myself if I'm going deep in a hole of my little boy self, I call it, right? To try to prove my little boy self. I look at my mission statement, I go, Am I trying to earn more of God's approval? Am I actually a faithful husband right now? Am I actually even pre- present or engaged to my children? You know, am I loving with my family right now or not? I'm not even spending time with them, right? Oh, okay. I'm just focusing on work and it's not even an eternal impact, right? And so it's just, it, it's that true north that always fixes your gaze on the direction that you know you want to go. And ministry can do that as easily as business. I think a lot of us can be driven for, I know that's part of my own story. It's like, you got to always redeem the motives. 
So you go from your own. Carrie, just on that point, I just want to make a quick comment or worse. Ministry, (laughs) I have so many brothers and sisters in ministry. And it's um, the first thing that I tell anyone that's going to be a pastor or going into ministry is, is watch over your marriage. Be very careful over your marriage because in the business world, if I work too much, I have brothers quickly telling me, hey, Mike, you're being a workaholic. Your family's at risk. Your marriage is at risk. Okay. In the ministry world, right? They don't call many pastors workaholics. They He's just so say they're faithful. Serving. Look at yeah, how hard he so, works. You're so faithful. Look how hard you're working. Your congregation needs you right now, right? There's this divorce happening. There's this happening. There's this. We got to raise money. For, for another ministry, a new building, all this thing. So it's, it's, hey, I'm just doing this for the glory of God, man. You know, he's just calling me right now in the season. And their marriages, their spouses are being neglected many times, mm-hmm. right? And, they're, and they never went out so, trying to do that, right? So you just, just as careful as us in the marketplace have to be of not becoming workaholics, right? And staying true to our original design, I call it, right? And that true north sort of mission in the ministry world, you need to be almost doubly as purposeful and as on guard as that, right? To not be a workaholic and not get your identity in what you do. It's way more subtle, but it may actually be way more deadly too. When you think about the implosion that happens, because in business, you know, sadly, marriages come and go, you know, people, people move in or out and People get hurt, but it tends to be a smaller circle. In ministry, when that happens, hundreds, thousands of people get hurt. Tens of thousands of people get hurt. So I, I hear you. One yeah. of our family values is give it, give it your best, not your all. Because if you give anything your all, you have nothing left to give. Right? So, so give it your best, not your all. Because if you give anything your all, you have nothing left to give. So don't give work your all just give it your best and let God handle the rest. Well, and it's your ministry, not your faith. There's a distinction, right? Like at a certain point, I am a Christian, but I am not. Yeah, I am the church. I know that theologically, but you know what I mean? There is a point at which you will not lead a ministry perhaps as actively as you do, but you will always have your personal ministry. So, wow. Okay. Fun, uh, fun divergence to talk about that. And I think you touched a, a lot of leaders with that. So let's, let's pick up if you're ready to go to your journey again. So you go from your startup to Dell Computers, and then you acquire this little startup in Silicon Valley, DocuSign, and you get assigned as one of the first staff to a company that I think a lot of us know, right? DocuSign. So what were some of the lessons you learned in the early days of a startup in Silicon Valley almost a decade ago? Yeah. And just for clarification, um, Dell Computers acquired our first startup called Wise. And then I left Dell and then I joined a little startup called DocuSign. Gotcha. Okay. Gotcha. Um, Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I learned a lot of things. Um, I learned um, a lot as working in these companies and then now as as an investor in venture capitalists and private equity, um, probably I'll boil it down to, I think, probably four things. The first thing I learned is that you must hire very smart people. Right. If, if you want to tackle very complex problems, you have to hire wicked smart people. Coming up through Cutco, I thought it was all about grid and drive and perseverance, as I mentioned. However, when you're trying to build a global company that touches hundreds of millions of people, and that's the vision, you must build a high performance team comprised of people that are high capacity, right? High IQ. Can, so I, can I, love- I ask you, like, as we go along, just one or two sub questions on these? 
Um, Because this is a question we get a lot around here, which is like, how do you find those people? I know there's a talent war going on, particularly if you're like hyper smart, hyper, you know, strategic people. Did you have any keys to help you identify, find and recruit those people? Yes. um, Anything and everything. So um, anything and everything. So I'll give you an example now. That's just a real life example from a couple of weeks ago. So at my current company, Garden City, we're hiring a vice president. Right. And so what's the strategy on hiring people that are the ideal team player? Right. That Patrick talks about. Yeah. Hungry, humble and smart. Right. And so one thing that we do is we just post it online, post it on our website. Now, that's what most people do. But guess what? As much as you think people are not going to your website that much. Right. So it's not going to get that much attraction. Right. Number two is we post it on all social platforms. Now, the path of least resistance does not work well when you want to attract the best people. So just going on LinkedIn and Facebook and Twitter and just saying we're hiring and putting a bunch of text, that does not work. So we recorded a video, right, that I went on a video. It took me 90 seconds. I just said, hi, everyone, I'm Mike with Garden City, and here's the position that we're hiring for. That video, carry got nine or probably by now 10,000 views. Wow. We got 200 applicants on that video alone right? Number three is we reach out to anyone and everyone and we say, hey, if you know anyone that fits these specific criterias, please forward it to them, right? Um, so we engage our, our network. And then lastly, we uh, reach out to a lot of recruiters and we just say, we're not going to sign a retainer with you, right? We're not going to do anything like that. But if you bring us someone and we end up hiring them, we're glad to pay you that fee. So you have to turn over any and all rocks, right? Um, and obviously, we have a very small staff, but at DocuSign, we had a very large staff. We had a very, very generous incentive that if you recruited anyone and you referred anyone, you would get a couple thousand dollars for recruiting that person. So you would have all of our 5,000 employees always trying to make a couple thousand. They're always money. recruiters. It's like, here's our always Christmas money, recruiters. honey. Yeah. Always recruiters. And they don't want to recruit bad people because then it falls on them, you know, which so they don't want to. That's so a great idea. You just have to have many tools in the arsenal, you know, and figure out what works best for you. But the whole go on career builder and post it on there and go on LinkedIn sales navigator or whatever and post it on there. Those days are long gone. And you're only going to get people primarily that you're not going to want 90 percent of. Them. Hmm. Okay, that's great. So that's lesson number one. Super helpful right there. Yeah. So so it's all about having very wicked smart people. The second thing I learned in Silicon Valley is start small. So there's riches in the niches. Don't be everything to everyone. Uh, we had a consultant, an author named Jeffrey Moore. He created something called the Bowling Alley Strategy. And this is where you find a niche where there's a problem and it's more easily able to overcome and then find ways to hop from that niche into other niches. And eventually, you're in the whole broader market. So we did this at DocuSign. We started off by just doing e-signatures in just real estate. If you're buying a house, you use DocuSign, right? I would wear a DocuSign hoodie. People would say, DocuSign, I love DocuSign. I bought a house at DocuSign. Now, if I wear a DocuSign hoodie, people would say, I just bought my Tesla with it, or I just signed a new loan with it, or I bought a cell phone. There's a hundred things. So once we knocked down the pin of real estate, we went into banking and insurance and automotive and telecommunications. And now that all the pins are knocked down, we're the global standard. Uber did the same thing. They started in one city and then two cities and then three, and that's the way they continued. They did the same exact thing with Uber Eats, right? Last one is eBay. eBay started with collectibles, like a flea market. Right. And they had this thing called an 
other category. They monitored this other category for trends. And once they saw a momentum behind a particular trend or, or behind a particular niche, they then built an infrastructure to cater to that niche, right? And that's how they became the largest electronics marketplace, the fashion retail warehouse, and the biggest car dealership in the world, right? If you would have asked me in the early days, would eBay sell cars in fashion? You yeah. say you're crazy, right? And so riches and the niches knock down one pin and focus on the others. Can I just ask you one supplement on that? Because we run into this all the time on our channels too. People are saying, but, but, but Mike, I want to reach everybody. Like we, we want to reach everybody. Like you can't just exclude people. What would you, what would you say to the leader who's thinking, yeah, I get that. I get that. But that's too small. I want to reach everybody. Yeah. It, it's just a tipping point. Um, I suggest you read uh, about the bowling alley. I suggest you read Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One. Mm. Um, I'd rather be impactful to a loyal 100 than uh, unloyal 50 or unloyal 1000, right? Mm. So figure out how you could build a, a raving group of fanatic fans that they love your offering and they gladly will pay anything that you charge and they gladly will share what you're doing with others so that your marketing dollars are as low as possible, right? So um, I would say if you wanna be everything to everyone, show me a case study where that has worked well, right? <laughs> Um, and until then, I could show you a thousand that when they follow this bowling alley specific, you're a podcast, Gary, right? You have a very specific focus, right? And it, that's probably one of the reasons why it's so well thought of. When I listen to it, I immediately know who else I want to share this with. And you immediately know who else you want to interview on it, right? You mm -hmm. know your games, mm -hmm. you know your focus. Yeah. Yeah. And that is really hard because the path to everyone starts with one or two. It's like, I don't know, you probably read Kevin Kelly's Thousand True Fans, something I recommend over and over again. But it's that whole idea that all you need to do is build a small tribe of a thousand people and you probably have a viable organization. And, you know, that doesn't mean a thousand attendants if you're a church leader, but just a thousand people who are affiliated. It's not that hard to do. Uh, but the enemy of that is trying to reach everybody and please everybody. So, Great lesson. Okay, anything else from Silicon Valley? Yeah, um, I think number three is very important. Is um, I've learned that instead of competing against your biggest competitors, find creative ways to partner there with them, right? Even if it's inviting them to invest in your company, right? At DocuSign, wow. uh, instead of viewing FedEx, which everyone said, oh, well, you're taking FedEx out of business because you no longer need to send things to get signed. We reached out to them and we said, would you like to be strategic partners of ours? And they invested in our company and they became large equity owners. Wow. Lyft did the same exact thing with General Motors in 2016. They invested half a billion dollars. It's very creative, right? You do not want to be the blockbuster that had a chance to purchase Netflix for $50 million, but they passed because they thought they could do it better and on their own, right? Mm -hmm. They would have benefited much greater together. So um, that's just a very big learning lesson I realized in Silicon Valley is that many people think that they're all competing, but what they're really doing is they're all partnering together for the most part. Does that somehow, and maybe it's a totally different theme, but does, does that somehow tap into scarcity versus abundance mentality? I, I absolutely think so. Yeah. Okay. Think about, yeah. Think about in the church world. I have a friend that's planning a new church here in Atlanta. And one of the things we talked about is in order I mean, it, it, it like focus on an abundance mindset, not scarcity, right? The entire mm. population's millions here, right? It's not a competition of your church is going to be at 8,000, there's going to be at 10, and maybe they go to nine, you go to 10, right? It's all, there's abundance out there. We have a generous God, right? 
let's find a way that we could figure out what each other's strengths are and let's divide and conquer and be stronger together. Heck, let's even refer people and tell them you might be better suited at this specific church family. I mean, that's unheard of, right? And so again, partnering rather than competing, we're stronger together in the end. Hmm. And then the last point is, um, this is specific to uh, entrepreneurs raising capital, um, but when you're raising capital, Actually, this goes to churches as well. When you're raising capital, integrate your corporate go-to-market strategy into your fine into your financing fundraising strategy. So, so what, what does I mean that by mean? That yeah. is if you want to partner with a specific organization, invite those organizations or the executives at those organizations to invest in your company, to participate in your fundraising round. So at DocuSign, we always sat in the room and said, man, one day Salesforce and Google and Microsoft and Visa and T-Mobile, one day they'll use our product and one day they'll call us a partner and one day you know, they'll, they'll be on stage at our user conference. And we said, well, instead of saying one day, why don't we just call them and say, hey, do you want to write a check and be an investor in our company? And naturally, they all became customers and partners thereafter. Instead of just saying, give us money. Anyone and everyone, okay, this bank or this venture capitalist, they don't provide much value, right? So why don't you first start to go after the impossibles that if they invested in your congregation or in your company or in your nonprofit, right after they invest, they could also add value by becoming a customer or a partner or an advocate or a marketing engine or whatever it may be. And then whatever is remaining left to fundraise, then you go to those that everyone starts with. Hmm. That's really counterintuitive. Also a little bit bold, right? Did you, were, did you make any of those calls or were you close to the people who made those calls to Google or to like, how did, how would a call like that go? Yeah. Um, my, um, our CFO and I were the two responsible for that. Um, and we would just call them and we would say, Hey, Microsoft, um, a lot of people, uh, use Microsoft and they, a lot of people use DocuSign. We've been trying to call you guys for a long time to partner, but I know you guys have a lot of other things going on, right? Uh, we're currently raising some money to continue to build DocuSign. We're going to go to venture capitalists and raise a bunch of money. But before we do that, it would be our dream if you wanted to partner. And again, a lot of these companies, they have a large reserve of cash sitting there. So they're looking to make great investments. They go, yeah, I'll invest $5 million, $20 million. And so now they're a little tiny part owner of DocuSign. Wow. After they invest, we call them and we go, hey, partner that you're an owner, part of our own company, um, who should we talk to to see if they want to buy DocuSign for the entire Microsoft Corporation? They go, oh, you need to call Jim. He buys all of our software for Microsoft. We're like, well, that was a lot easier. So I tell every startup I speak to, I tell every single one, even church leaders that are thinking about raising their launch capital to launch a church, I go, instead of just asking anyone and everyone, who would be your dream 20 people in the city that if they invested in helping launch this church, you know, for the next five to 10 years, they would be the most influential people and helpful to help the sustainability of this church. Go after those first and whatever is not yet fulfilled, then you go after everyone else, you know, but just th this whole missional focus on being targeted of integrating your go to market strategy with your fundraising strategy. Well, those are some great lessons on uh, just the general thing. What did you learn about growth while like, and you think not just about Silicon Valley, but Garden City, your time at Dell, the other companies. What, 
What have you learned about growth and scale in your time in leadership? Yeah, know who you are and know who you're not. Hmm. And then go find the best person to fill your gaps. Bill Gates is a technologist. He needed Steve, uh, Steve Ballmer to be the sales and marketing guy. Right. Right. So from day one, right, so that's one is I know who you're not and know that you're not. Something else is uh, be diligent, talking about growth, be diligent about building repeatable standard operating procedures, right? Hmm. Um, if you're the innovator, then find the integrator that could help you set up your reoccurring one-on-one meetings, your weekly kickoff meetings, your management meetings, your OKRs, your KPIs, right? So again, if you are the innovator, find someone that's the integrator to set up these repeatable standard operating procedures. Um, And the other thing I learned about growth is surround yourself with trusted, like-minded advisors who have been there before, right? Learn from their mistakes and they will save you the headaches so that you don't have to be under the desk in the fetal position like they've been many times. How did you figure out who you're not? Because uh, we have a, a lot of people who lead smaller organizations, smaller churches, smaller businesses. And so they tend to attract generalists, right? Well, you don't understand, but when everybody leaves, I got to clean the bathroom or I've got to do the email myself, right? So how did you figure out who you're not? Because I've found I've gotten a lot better as I've discovered, oh, I'm actually only good at one or two things. I thought when I was in my 20s, I thought I was great at everything. And I'm like, oh, I'm actually terrible at most things. And if I stick to my lane, I do better. So how did you figure out who you're not? And then what are you not? Yeah, um, I just entered this journey probably a year and a half to two years ago. Um, Until then, I replicate what you just said of, uh, man, well, I'm great at everything. I'm a startup guy and I'm a growth guy and I'm also fundraise and I'm operations. Heck, I'm also sales, you know, A through Z. And the and now the harsh reality is I love what you just said. Of, I'm actually pretty terrible at a lot of things. And I, and, and I feel you on that one. How did I find out what I'm not? Two things. One is by cultivating an environment around me of direct, honest, and open communication direct, honest, and open communication. So this whole thesis or this whole thing around radical candor, if you've never heard of that, just go Google the radical candor book, or there's a woman in Silicon Valley that talks about this. Um, but we, I really believe if you're going to be um, part of our company, or if you're going to be part of my community in terms of my friend, I want you to give me radical, direct, open, and honest candor. Tell me the things I'm great at. Tell me the things I am not good at at all, right? And together, right, when you tell me that, we will be stronger together, right? So it's creating an environment like that. Um, Another rule on that is if it's bad feedback that I could develop on, tell me behind closed doors. If it's good things you want to praise me on, you could tell me that in front of open doors, right? So that's one is, is cultivating an environment where people could give you radical candor. And the second thing is we are in a day and age where it's phenomenal how much resource you get around personality tests. Right. Mm-hmm. So I've taken I've taken um, the strength finder. I've taken the five voices, the Enneagram. Right. And they all all of my results all show very similar things. Challenger, pioneer. Oh, so you're an eight. Oh, I, I'm a hard. Eight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. High five. Yeah. Uh, same here. Yep. And so through those two things. OK. 
Um, candor is hard. And I know what you mean by radical candor. That too has been a growth journey for me. We just literally had a two hour team meeting today where I'm like permission to speak freely, permission to disagree. Um, go ahead, push back. What if it's a bad idea? Uh, tell me where I'm wrong. That's been a learned journey for me. And you have to overcome a lot of insecurities to get there. How, how do you not let that get you down? Because I know so many leaders struggle with radical candor. It's like, tell me the truth. And then you tell them the truth. And they're like, actually, I didn't want to hear that. So thank you. Or you get fired or <laughs> whatever. How, how do you not let that get to your head? Well, I, I think another question that probably a lot of people may be thinking is, okay, well, I tell everyone in my organization, let's have radical candor. Let's have direct, open, and honest communication. And then we open it up and there is none, right? Yeah. And yeah. So, so how do we actually cultivate an environment where people are vulnerable and transparent? Um, I think of the, uh, an ice analogy. So if you look at, a, at you know, go up there to, to Canada and you go to a pond and it's frozen, well, you might have to hit that ice with a picket many, many times before you get to the water, right? So when you hit it the first time, you're not going to get to water. So you have to hit it. So what we do here at Garden City or what we did at DocuSign is I would exercise this. So the first thing is you need to, you need to be the leader that exemplifies what you're preaching. And so I give a lot of radical candor to people. I tell people, hey, you missed the mark on this. It was not good. Or hey, you did not do this well, or hey, you should have done this, right? Or I was expecting you to do that. And, and it's uncomfortable for the first couple of times because they're your friends and you care for them and all that's true, right? But if you really care for them, you should tell them where they're missing the mark because they want to do good work that's meaningful and purposeful, right? So first thing is you do it. And the second thing is on your one-on-ones, you have to ask, give me feedback where I could be better to your subordinates, right? It's your direct report to your team. Now, naturally, what they're going to do is they're going to say, everything's going well. You're and doing a great we, job. You're doing a great job. And then what you have to do is you have to keep hitting that ice and say, nope, I know I'm not perfect. No one's perfect. Tell me I could do better. Ah, nothing can come to mind. Then I hit the ice again. I'm like, well, unfortunately, we're not going to the next question until you tell me where I could do better because I care for you way too much. And I know I'm missing the mark somewhere. You know, and when you just sit there and you create that environment, they know what's in their head. They're just thinking, am I really going to say it? You know, and so I just asked someone there recently and he told me, Mike, you're always late to our one on ones. Always. You're always late to our one on ones, you know, and I'm always looking forward to them. I have a whole agenda and you walk in 15 minutes late. I know you're busy. I know you're dealing with other things, but, you know, it just I just wish you were on time. And I was like, wow, I never even thought about that. Right. But I had to ask him like five times, Carrie, tell me how I could be better. He would have never told me otherwise. Right. Mm. Um, and so and then in terms of how does it not uh, get to you, you just have to realize that the only reason why it matters is you're trying to accomplish a true north. Right. It goes back to Patrick Ancioni's book, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Go read it. Right. Five Dysfunctions of a Team. It's. You, in order to be all rowing in the same direction, in order to be on a Navy SEAL Team 6, if someone misses a left turn on a mission, you're going to tell your team member, dude, you just missed a left turn. Like the mission is now in jeopardy. I care for you and us way too much to not tell you that you just missed that left turn. So we've come through a year. You're doing a startup. We're going to get to Garden City in a second. But we've come through a year that's been just, you know, scrambled eggs for most leaders. Hard, discouraging unpredictable. And 2021, yeah, maybe there's a vaccine on the way, which is awesome. But like, it's it's still an instability. A lot of us are not 
accustomed to leading through, leaders are hoping to make progress in 2021. How would you, are there a couple of keys for you that seem to always lead to progress? Like what, what do most leaders miss when they get stuck? Um, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think um, if they're getting stuck, I think there's a lot of reasons on that. One, they may be afraid of dreaming. They themselves don't believe it's possible to turn the ship around. They only look at what can go wrong instead of saying what has to be true in order for this to go right. They don't surround themselves with people that are encouraging them. They don't surround themselves with a high-performance team who are saying that they're committed to achieving the impossible. Right? Um, in terms of how to make progress, uh, we always have a saying um, here is uh, think big break down and execute, right? And I got that from Brett Hagler, is just think big, break down and execute, right? And he it's figured out how to print houses using 3D printing. So that's like that's like thinking really big, yeah. Exactly, right? So that's a big idea. The, the big idea there was, how can we build a house in 24 hours for less than $3,000? I mean, that's thinking big, right? How can we build a house in a third world country for that amount in less than 24 hours? So, and then after that, you break it down and you go, okay, well, maybe it has to be a 3D printer, right? And then from there you execute, right? And you go, how do you build a 3D printer, right? And so whatever the, your uh, company organization ministry is going through, right? Think big, break down and execute. It's easy to get overwhelmed on a bunch of ideas and not get any true progress, right? Mm. So here's a good exercise I tell a lot of people. Write down all your ideas right now, right? Write down all your new initiatives that are running through your head right now. Let's just say it's 10. Force yourself to cross out seven of them. Force yourself. Once you have that bottom top three ideas that you believe could truly help drive progress or help grow or sustain your organization, it is then your responsibility to bring them to your team and hear their perspectives, right? The number one leadership lesson, I believe, is people support what they help create. People support what they help create, right? If you want your team to support one of your initiatives, you must have them be part of the process, right? If they help create it, they will help support it. This alone many times will be the biggest breakthrough for leaders, right? They're saying, well, I have many ideas that they can help the organization. I pick one and then it just doesn't happen, right? Well, one, maybe you picked the wrong idea. So let's have a conversation with your team because they might have different perspectives. And two, they feel like it's your idea, not their own, right? They're not excited to work on it, right? So that's what I would say. Give that a shot if you really want to make good progress heading into the new year. Why do you think so many businesses get stuck or are just in that slow decline? Because you've been part of hyper growth. But when you look at others, why do you think so many people get stuck in that space? I don't think they have a concise plan. Right? I think many people do ready, fire, and then aim. Um, and so they don't have a concise plan of what is our vision? Why do we exist? What is our mission? Like, what do we actually do day in, day out? That's our mission, what we do. What are our values? Like, how do we go and live out that mission? What are our standards? You know, what are the 15 to 30 standards that we do daily superior to our competition that we do in order to win? What must, who must I get on board in order to achieve this, right? Where do I find them? How do I onboard them and actually make them part of this team, right? You can, and then you cannot get anyone on board unless you have that why, right? Which is why I started with the vision and the why in the first place. Ah, that's good. Come up with that concise plan. 
And if you don't have a plan, Google it. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The internet has helped us with this stuff, right? And uh, okay. So you had a brand new venture called Garden City. And my understanding, you get a lot of investors lined up and you're going to be buying up family owned, small to mid sized businesses. Because a lot of people have a passion, you know, they love doing, let's say, uh, a florist or something like that, or garden center, or what would be another example? You know, even I'm sure a garage, right? Like somebody repairs cars, or uh, it could be a somewhat small manufacturing firm. And I come from entrepreneurial family, small family owned business. And, um, you know, I saw my parents go through that. But a lot of people struggle with the running of the business. So tell us about the vision for Garden City and what you hope to accomplish through it. Yeah, sure. Uh, Garden City is a holding company. And we invest in family-owned service companies. Um, we grow them and we hold them forever. So we have no intention of ever selling them. So it's this kind of Christian Brookshire Hathaway. If you know Warren Buffett's model, yeah. it's like that. But we focused on... Uh, really putting um, a culture where all service workers could thrive, prosper, and flourish in God's image. Um, so we're really just trying to create amazing jobs, and we're trying to modernize these companies to be modern and innovative and tech-enabled and, and, and efficient, right? Um, and so that's what we do. Um, we invest in um, all sorts of companies, sanitation, janitorial, uh, waste management, staffing companies, restoration, linen, right? Pest control, HVAC, plumbing, all those sort of things. Um, very, very sexy businesses. Mm -hmm. right? We actually say boring is sexy to us. We love boring. Boring is beautiful, right? Um, and to be clear, these businesses are not struggling, right? Right. Hey, they're doing They're profitable. They don't need a big turnaround. Yeah extremely profitable. They're growing every year. They have strong management teams. They have loyal customers. Um, and I see this as the best place to drive real impact in this world. Hmm. Where do we primarily spend all of our time? At work. Yeah, right? We primarily spend yeah. all of our time at work. So where do you think the biggest impact is going to happen? At work. Just I mean, it's just a pure numbers perspective, right? So we want to meet people where they spend the most of their time. And we want to let them know that they matter. And we want them to unlock their God-given potential. We want them to go on a career trajectory where they could go from making livable wage. Note that I did not say minimum. Right. Livable, livable wage. They have good benefits, right? Good perks. And through the course of their lifetime, they're getting training. They're getting development. They're getting all sort of programs that they're hopefully go from $17 an hour to $100,000 a year, mm. right? And we put them on a career trajectory, right? That they're just obsessed working there. Um, small businesses, they don't say small on purpose, right? When a right. company launches, their dream is not to hit $20 million of revenue and then just grow 5% there on after, right? So again, small businesses don't say small on purpose. Hmm. What are some of the common struggles you see with independently owned, family owned businesses? Like what are some of the lids? Because, you know, pastors don't own churches, but we have a lot of entrepreneurs listening as well. But I find that there's a lot of common things that smaller to mid-sized organizations struggle with. Oh, I think it's the same three. So we always say culture, tech, and sales, right? Okay. Culture, tech, and sales. Sometimes other things say people, processes, and um, and technology, but at Garden City, we say the three areas that we help small businesses with, and I could put in parentheses, or that I speak to my pastor friends with, is culture, mm -hmm. tech, and marketing, right? With culture, it's what does it look like to create and cultivate a thriving, 
healthy environment where everyone truly feels that they love their work, right? That not one day is work. A place that there are programs and trainings and resources that serve them that they could actualize their God-given potential, right? And if you do, and if you think that that does not matter, right? Look at how much it matters to the bottom line. Turnover and hiring and onboarding and offboarding, it's one of the biggest so costs. Expensive. So expensive, right? And such a distraction. And also, if you want high customer satisfaction, you want raving fans, we'll have raving employees first, mm-hmm. right? So that's the first thing that we look at is we go to business owners and we say, the number one thing we want to do is cultivate and create an environment where people could thrive, prosper, and flourish. That might mean that you ask people that are in legal, do you like being in legal? And they go, between you and I, I'm obsessed with marketing, but I didn't go to school for marketing. I don't know a lot about marketing. The first thing we're going to do is figure out a way that we could put that woman or that guy in marketing, right? Because we know that they will thrive there, right? They will thrive there. Not one day will feel like work and they'll give us 10x the output. The second thing is technology, right? Helping implement new technology into the business or into the church. Technology is no longer a nice to have. It's a must-have in order to be competitive in today's environment. You cannot compete without a strong technology strategy. If you do not have a four-quarter or even better, a six-quarter rolling technology strategy, you're in trouble. What is a four-quarter or six-quarter rolling technology strategy? Sure. So there's four quarters in a year, right? Um, So every three months. um, And if you do not have a clear strategy that shows what you're doing every quarter, or every year, or I prefer every six quarters, right out, then you are you're left behind. So you have some churches that I speak to that I'm saying, so hey, so what are you guys doing for 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 technology? They're like, oh, we uh, rolled out PushPay and the video platform of Resi and and whatever else. It is. Yeah, and we updated our website in 2017. So yeah, yeah, of yeah. course, and and so we're doing good, but we're focusing on on this new campaign, right? <laughs> And the thing is, there is so much happening in technology through giving, through marketing, through videos, through whatever else it may be, HR internally, fundraising. There's so many things that you must have your fingers on the pulse to know what is out there, what can we do better, what's going to be less expensive, what's going to be a better uh, member experience, what's going to be a better uh, employee experience, and so forth. Right. So it's not just doing one or two things to check the box. It's at any given point, if you're on the board of a church or you're on the board of an organization, one of the first questions you should ask them in every board meeting is, are we going to talk today about what our strategy is in technology and what we have going on? Right. And what's in the works? You should always either be sunsetting a technology, aka getting rid of a technology. You should either always be purchasing a technology. You should always be implementing a technology, right? Or you should always be evaluating a technology. At any given point, you should always be doing something in there. Because that's your wheelhouse. Can you tell me what the sun is setting on right now? Like what would be an example? Let's say we're going to that board meeting or that that all staff meeting or the executive team meeting. What would be an example of something that's kind of 2019 and something that's rolling into the future? Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll give you something just of today that I spoke with. So we're looking at a staffing company to, to invest into. Um, and I just asked her, talk to me through your current technology system. And she said, well, we have a financial system. So we went away from QuickBooks and, you know, a couple other systems. So I said, okay, let's just start in 2005. Do you have a CRM? 
And she's like, oh, that means um, customer something. Uh, yeah, customer relationship management. It's like the biggest player in the world. It's called Salesforce. So how do you manage your top customers to know uh, the opportunities you have currently on the docket with them, what products they're looking at, what new opportunities, the pricing, the discounts, the notes of that, who's working on that? How do you manage that? And the crazy part is that it's all through email and spreadsheets and all in your mind, right? And so we don't even need to get into 2020 technologies of artificial intelligence or machine learning or algorithms or AI or, 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 or internet or connected devices. None of that. I mean, let's just go from 2005 and just work our way backwards, right? Do right. we have Facebook ad spend? Do we have an ERP system? Is there an HR system? For the companies we look at, do you have an invoicing system? Is there a dispatch system, right? All these sort of things. There's a whole plethora out there, right? I mean, I came from DocuSign. I asked people, how do you send out contracts? They're like, we open a Microsoft Word document. We fill it out. We uh, download it on our desktop. We send it via email. Then the customer opens it. Then they sign it. Then they scan it. Then they send it back to us. Then we have to print it. I'm like, that's crazy. You know, so there's a hundred things like Dropbox or there's so many things. So I would just say, I don't know what your space is, but again, if you do not have a strategy right now that you know what you're implementing, what you're buying today or four or, or four quarters from now, you're in trouble, right? You're in trouble. Um, and then lastly, um, is sales, right? Or marketing. Right. Um, you can't sell today the way they used to sell, right? There's so many things competing for people's eyeballs and attention. If you have not seen the social dilemma on Netflix, please watch it because it will highly let you know what's really you know, highly recommended of what's really going on out there. So you need sustainable and scalable sales methodologies, right? And what got you from zero to 10 million is not going to get you from 10 to 50 or 50 to 100, right? So you need to know for, for us and our businesses, we help business owners think through how do you assign quotas for salespeople? Do you hire dedicated salespeople? Um, what are their territories that they're responsible for? What are their comp packages, right? How do you create partners that are going to help spread the cause? So thinking through reimagining, as we say, reimagining and redeeming culture, tech, and sales. Wow. And that's the stuff that everybody ignores because it's like, really what I enjoy is I really enjoy um, selling flowers. What I really enjoy is preaching sermons. What I really enjoy is podcasting. I don't want to have to think about distribution, right? So that's sort of like, okay, that's great, Mike. I get it. But what is it? I want to find the carrot here. What is the difference or is there a connection between a well-run business and an effective business? Do you know what I mean? To what extent does all of these things operating in the background, does that actually advance the mission, whatever your mission is? Is there a direct connection? Yes. Um, I absolutely believe that there's a difference between a well-run and an effective, scalable, or even a better word, sustainable business, right? right? Um, I say a lot that 95% of the businesses I speak with, I call them owner hustles. Owner hustles. If they get hit by a bus, there's no business. There's no business. No weeks or a couple months. And there's no church and there's no organization. Somebody's left to pick up the pieces or just close it up, right? Absolutely. I have so many friends that work in churches and they say that that the leader of the church, if they weren't there or they're not there for a week or a month, the whole place falls apart, yeah. right? So that is not a well-run, sustainable place. Now, it doesn't mean it can't exist, but it's something I ask many business owners is, do you believe you're the type of person 
who naturally wants to get a car to go from zero to 50 miles per hour or 50 to 100 miles per hour? AKA, are you more of like a growth startup kind of imaginative person or are you more of a scale process um, procedures type of person? Because those require two completely different types of people, right? So if you've built your business or church to a point that you have employees and members or customers and profitability and revenue, you should be extremely proud of yourself. I mean, that's an amazing accomplishment. You're an outlier. You're an entrepreneur that has achieved the impossible. But there's a big comma. Right? <laughs> comma, however, you must now have the trust and the humility to find someone who's skilled at taking that car from 50 to 80 or 100 miles per hour. Right? That's not your skill set. That's not your wheelhouse. And you're doing yourself and you're doing your people a disservice by staying in that position, right? The beautiful part is that this may actually allow you to go back to stay focused on your first love of creating new ideas, of innovation, of maintaining and cultivating those relationships that matter most to your company or to your church, right? But again, in order to overcome this, you must have self-realization about your strengths and your weaknesses. You know, one of the things is, as you talk through this, I'm thinking about, you know, what is the connection or to what extent is there a connection between being a well-run organization and investor conf confidence or donor confidence? Because I can think of as, as someone who had the privilege of delivering checks to various charities at different times. I remember one instance where I was there and like the executive director of the charity was too busy to come and receive the check. And the place looked chaotic and I'm like, uh, should we be investing in this or not? You know, and you're happy to do it. You're happy to, but like, oh my gosh, like w to what extent? Cause I'm, I'm thinking about that. One of the comments we had over the years at Connexus is uh, I remember we were touring our new facility a few years ago and, and we were walking through the mayor and some town counselors. They're like, I feel like we're in Silicon Valley. Like this is impressive for a city our size. But I have a feeling that that is connected to confidence in people saying this is a good place to give because the money is going to go somewhere, right? If you're a, a, a tither or a donor, but you want to feel good about that. Is that a connection? Am I overstating it? What do, you, what do you think? I think you're spot on and you're a lot more kind and compassionate than I am because if I walked into that place, I would have gone and find a new nonprofit to give. Yeah, to. I almost walked out the door. I'm like, I don't think it's a good use of money. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. So the way that I see it is yeah. you only fall into two buckets, turn around or further, or, or further accelerate what's already in place, right? Mm -hmm. So that would be a good question for leaders to ask themselves is what type of organization do you truly believe that you're running? If someone else came in, are they going to have to turn this whole thing around? Or are they just going to want to say, wow, I want to put more gas on this, right? I want to further accelerate what's already in place. Me, personally, I may further accelerate what's already in place, right? There's a lot of good companies out there. There's a lot of good leaders out there. I want to just further accelerate what people have already built. If you want to raise more capital from investors or donors, be committed to building a well-run, effective, excellent organization, right? Colossians. 323, I think. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it, do it as a representative of Jesus, right? Giving thanks to him through Christ or giving thanks to God through Christ, right? So in whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it as a representative of Jesus. I mean, that's a pretty big thing. So if you're going to do it, I don't know about you, but if I was wearing a badge that said I'm on the team of Jesus, I'm going to do it pretty excellent. 
I'm going to cross my T's, dupe my eyes, and I'm, my office is going to look like Silicon Valley, right? Yeah, yeah. If it's well, if it's well run, you will have no problem raising capital, right? People will want to further accelerate what you're doing, right? In regards to donor confidence, I don't know many donors who seek to invest in organizations that are not being run with excellence, right? Donors are looking to be stewards of their hard-earned capital, and they want to see their fruit multiply, right? I recently heard of a church that purchased over $10,000 of Christmas trees a couple of years ago, and the pastor changed a theme last minute, um, and they threw away that money. When I heard of that, it did not inspire me to want to invest there, right? Um, so to me, that's not a well-run thing. They should have thought that out better, right? They should have been more thoughtful around that. Um, and so, um, however, there's many nonprofit organizations that are better run than for-profit organizations. Right? They have a clear charter. They have a clear charter. They have a strong management team, right? And they look at themselves like a for-profit organization. The only thing is they take the profits and they distribute it out to other causes. And so they're investing in people, processes, and technologies, right? And it's clear. It's always clear to see the health of an organization carry from the outside in. Last thing I'll say is my mother always told me this, and I don't know how healthy it is, but I do believe in it. What others probably think of you, they're probably right. Mm. You know, and, and I just think of- That's a really interesting thought. It, it, right, because, it, because yeah. I mean, from the outside, it speaks a lot, right? It, 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 I mean, Carrie, if you don't know me and we're at a restaurant and you make a first impression of my, my children, my wife and I, whatever you probably think, chances are you're probably right. I mean, there's some outliers. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. You're probably right. And my life's kind of flashing through my the decades, and I'm like, oh yeah, people would say different things to me in my 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. Like, yeah, yeah. There's a. I'm going to think about that. That's kudos to your mom. <laughs> you're young, Mike. Uh, barely 32. You have a lot of influential investors in Garden City, and you've curated a lot of relationships. Um, how do you curate and cultivate those relationships? Yeah, this is by far my greatest strength. Um, in life, I believe it's all about having real, authentic relationships. So whenever I first meet anyone, regardless of their title or position, I've always had this mindset that everyone is equal. Even before being a believer, I've always had this mindset that everyone poops and pees. I always say that. Everyone poops and pees and everyone dies, right? It's just the truth, right? So yeah. I've met... I've met two presidents now, um, and even when meeting with them and shaking their hands, I'm like, he poops, he pees, and he's going to die. You know, so we're, 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 we're equal for the most part. So that, that allows me not to put anyone on a pedestal, right? Mm -hmm. So even, or, or, or not put them on a pedestal, right? Um, right. So um, even if I speak to a service worker, I speak to him or her as the same fashion as Hort Schultz, Pat Gelsinger, you or Lecrae or anyone, right? Um, so I don't approach the conversation with fear um, or with pride or with ego. I believe they're just as fortunate spending time with me as a son of God as I am with them, right? We both have something to offer each other. Um, I show my imperfections out of the gates. Um, I'm not scared to say things about my past. I have a stutter problem. I'm new to private equity. I'm young, right? I'm learning how to be a father of three children, so forth. I call this the gunfight. In all relationships, I strive, right? The sooner I can put my gun down, the other party's going to put their gun down. Oh, that's interesting. And that's what vulnerability does. Completely, right? So I try to put my gun down as quick as possible so that we could quickly start building a real meaningful relationship. And once you put your gun down, they'll quickly do the same. 
Um, I mean, Drew Brees is one of my investors on, on the New Orleans Saints and someone introduced us and out of the gates, I just started talking about my vulnerabilities. I mean, it would be the stupidest thing to do if you were um, a private equity investor trying to raise capital, right? I mean, why would he ever do that? Yeah, yeah, because you would think it would undermine confidence, but it doesn't. Of course, exactly. I'm like, yeah, everything was super expensive here. I took the call from the beach. I was like, everything's super expensive here. I got this really uh, crappy little uh, condo here. It's really bad. It doesn't have any air conditioning. We, we could only stay here for four nights, you know, blah, blah, blah. Everything was sold out. Also, this just happened. I mean, I'm out of the gates. And he's like, oh, man, let me tell you about what just happened to me with the media. All of a sudden, our, our guns are down quickly. We're building wow. a true, authentic relationship, right? Um, I'm truly curious, right? I ask more questions than them than they could ever ask of me. People call this building rapport. There's many books on it, right? If leaders eat last, right? And all yeah. these other things. Simon Sinek's book. Yeah. But for me, it's just authentic. I mean, there's life is short. People have lived many years. I just want to get to know them. So I ask a hundred questions, right? Like I asked you, Carrie, where, where do you live? Oh, on the lake. Oh, how far from like, what do you do on the lake? Like, no, oh, totally. Right. And so it's just naturally building rapport, but it's got to come to, from a place of authenticity. And then last, kind of the last two things is if I feel prompted, I invite them on the journey that I'm on. Right now I'm on this journey of Garden City. So I naturally ask people if I feel prompted, do you want to invest in Garden City? It's a holding company where all service workers thrive. And I don't see it as me asking for something. I see that I'm giving them a favor. I'm extending an invitation of them to join me on something that I'm very excited, that I believe so much about that I've dedicated my life to in this current season. I mean, that's a big thing. If you're leading a church, when you're asking people for a donation or a contribution, are you asking them like feeling bad or are you seeing it as you're extending invitation to join you on something that you so deeply believe in that you and your family are making these sacrifices? And the last thing is, I do what I say I'm going to do. I follow up. If I'm the one making the ask, I'm the one following up right? And I rush to follow up before they do, right? Many times people's actions speak louder than words and their actions ruins all the initial input that they put in the first place, right? So I follow up quickly. I make it very simple. People are busy and I may even go a different route. In order to be vulnerable and authentic and build a relationship, I might not even follow up on email. I might follow up on text message because now I'm breaking into them by saying, hey, the whole email world, that's an easy world to engage in. I'm not going directly into your DMs as, as the millennials would call it, right? I'm going direct into your text message. And now immediately it kicks off this true, authentic, intimate relationship that's built to last. You, uh, I subscribed to different newsletters and early on when we met, well, it was fairly recently, but I immediately subscribed to your newsletter and um, it's good. Uh, I, I do this, you know, I unsubscribe from a lot of stuff, but there's a few I really look forward to. And I would say you would probably be at the top of the list or near the top of the list for really curious, interesting, huh, I didn't know that. So it's almost like if you subscribe to Tim Ferriss's Five Bullet Friday, it's kind of a, a version of that where you'll you'll bring some articles from The Hustle or different things. But I'm like, there was one on uh, like how McDonald's turned it around. And then one, an article that you linked to on automation of telephone operators in the 1920s. Like, I'm like, whoa, this is like right field, left field, all over the place. But I loved it because you you took me out of my normal box and into places. I'd love to talk to you about that curiosity, 
and your habit of your of of curation. How do you why do you read that stuff? Where do you find it? Why do you send that out? It's like I really look forward to that newsletter. Yeah, Einstein said if you stop learning, then you start dying. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to start dying. So I keep... <laughs> and so um, I think it's important to know what really piques your interest. Uh, for us, talking about the bowling alley um, example, the bowling alley strategy. At Garden City, we only buy service companies. That's it. Only service companies, only family owned. So for our newsletter, we're only going to do a newsletter on service companies. So McDonald's is a service company. The, the automation company is a service company. So we only focus on service companies. We don't say anything out about motivation or culture or anything like that at all. You know, um, So um, just know your audience. That's your filter. Our filter is called the service report. You go on our website and look at it and sign up for it. It only comes out once every two weeks. And we spend a lot of time curating it. People support what they help create. So how do we do it? People curate articles and they send them to us all the time. Ah, so that's not just you going, oh, I'm going to clip that and put that in the newsletter, yet your team collaboratively team putting does. it together. Yeah, our team goes through all of them and we just say less is more. And so we never do more than 10. It's typically, it's five to eight. We know people are busy and so we do that. But um, yeah, learning's everything, right? I always have a little notepad on my phone every time someone tells me to read a book and I just quickly write it down. Um, I think it's really important for people to know what it is that piques your interest. I figured that out a couple of years ago that for me, it's nonfiction stories, nonfiction books based on the historical narrative, the historical story of someone's life lessons uh, learning. So I'm reading Bob Iger's book from Disney of the ride yeah. of a lifetime. I love it. Right. I love it. Love it. Love it. As Warren Buffett said, it's good to learn from your own mistakes but it's better to learn it from others' mistakes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Constantly learning. Constantly learning. Oh, Mike, this has been uh, so fascinating. What? Um, anything else you want to share or what is one question nobody ever asked you that you wish people would ask you? Is all the success worth it? Wow. Yeah, I think that's the question. And? No, it's not. No, it's not. I think the real currency is looking at your children when you're older and for them to say, dad and mom, I don't know how you guys did it, but you crushed it. 10 out of 10. Come over here and give me a kiss and a hug. You're, I mean, I just hope that I could be a decimal of what you were to me. Um, and that comes at a cost. Every yes, there's a no, right? Every yes, there's a no. Um, and so when you say yes to success and to accomplishment and to building, you're saying no to other things. There's going to be less vacations. There's going to be less times on the baseball field. There's going to be less coming home. There's going to be less dinners. There's going to be less fill in the blank, right? Um, and that's the, that's the juggling act, right, which takes so much prayer. Takes so much discernment, takes so much wisdom from others, takes so much humility to say, who is my audience? Truly, who is my audience? And can I finish this ride well? And look in the rearview mirror and say, well done, well done. So that's the question that no one asked me is, is all of it worth it? It's a constant, constant battle, I think, for anyone that is experiencing success, an athlete, a business person, a church leader, 
so forth, is how do you balance that well so that it does not become your god or idol? Mike Arietta, it's been a joy. Thank you so much. Um, people are going to want to follow you. You're a great follow. So website, where are you on social? Uh, let us know. Yeah. Um, I got off social a couple of years ago. The only social I'm on is LinkedIn. Um, so you could uh, find me on LinkedIn. Um, Decision behind that? It was distracting, not good for you? What? I, um, I was part of a, a quick story. I was part of a prayer group in Silicon Valley a lot of people that I won't mention what companies they were at, but prior NSA and stuff like that, that all work at massive tech firms. And um, let's just say nobody in that group is on social anymore. Yeah, it was a pretty big thing for us. Um, um, so I, I just know my weaknesses and I'm not strong enough to, to, to properly uh, have the discipline to balance that out. So for me, it's just easier to not get close to it. Wow. So, um, Thank you. yeah, so, yeah, so that, that's that, but, um, yeah, but go to our website, it's joingardencity.com. Um, and you could shoot me an email at michael at joingardencity.com or add me on LinkedIn. would love to connect and be helpful in any way that I can. And just always remember that life is short. Time is ticking. We don't know which page of our book we're on. You might be on the last page, last chapter. So live every day like it's your last and trust in God. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. See you, brother. Well, that was fascinating and honest and humbling and so good. And I look forward to getting to know Mike better over the years as well. If you want to access the show notes, you can do that for free over at kerryneuhoff.com forward slash episode 402. I've got a what I'm thinking about segment coming up. I am going to talk about signs that your character may be imploding. This is something I watch really carefully. I appreciate honest conversations like the one Mike and I have had. And of course, with the headlines lately, you know, this is something we should all be watching. So Definitely uh, hang in for that. In the meantime, I can't wait to uh, introduce you to next week's guest. We have Cal Newport. So Cal is somebody that I have really benefited from. As you may know, he has written deep work and digital minimalism, and his work has been very influential with me. And he's got a brand new book coming out soon called A World Without Email. And we have a fascinating conversation on productivity and knowledge work and all of that. Here is an excerpt. If I've been putting a lot of energy into Twitter, I could probably get a lot of followers and maybe it would have helped like the last book I wrote, maybe have more sales right up front or something like this. But the the impact on my cognitive resources is such that instead of publishing my seventh book right now, maybe I'd just be on my fifth. Subscribers like Marky Mark, you get that absolutely free. And if you're new to the podcast, you're just tuning in, um, please subscribe. It's absolutely free. We love doing this with you. Coming up, we have Adam Grant, John Maxwell, Rick Warren, Ian Cron, Annie F. Downs, Amy Edmondson, Simon Sinek, and so many more. I'm so excited to bring you all of this this year. And we love being able to do that for free. That's because of our partners. And thank you so much to Generis and for ServeHQ for bringing you this episode. Uh, you can schedule your complimentary generosity discovery session today at generis.com forward slash carry. That's C-A-R-E-Y. And Generis is G-E-N-E-R-I-S. And by ServeHQ, you can go to servehq.church to sign up for a free 14-day trial and use the code carry to get 10% off for life. So I am thinking about your character, my character, and what happens when your character 
implodes, right? Because I think we're not, we don't live in this place where people just wake up one day, you know, they were doing great yesterday and all of a sudden, you know, they're doing something that would land you in jail or they're in bed with somebody they're not married to. I mean, that's not how it happens. And so, you know, I am very committed to trying to finish leadership well. And uh, I know a lot of you are as well. And the headlines that you see are terrifying, right? How do you know that this stuff couldn't happen to me or could happen to me? So there are five signs that, and, and there are more than that, but I just want to <laughs> zero in on a few today and say, hey, pay attention to this. So here's one. There's a growing gap between what you say publicly and how you live privately. Um, you know, there, for a lot of us, we have public roles, right? You're leading a company, you're leading a church, you're on stage, you're giving talks. And there can be a tendency to have sort of your private life and then your public life. And that is very dangerous. I say to my team all the time, well, the good news is I get to get up every morning and be me, right? Now that comes with all the warts and all the mistakes and all the stuff. But um, when you notice a gap, when there are things you're not willing to talk about with people, when you are saying things that aren't 100% true about you, pay attention, okay? Character rarely implodes suddenly. It's almost always a slow erosion. So you want to make sure your talk matches your walk. And uh, there's some guidelines. You can go a little bit deeper on my website. I, I've got guidelines on how to be appropriately transparent. You don't want to do your therapy on stage. Um, but if you find that you're kind of lying about some stuff going on in your life, really pay attention to that. Any growing gap between your private walk and your public talk shows that your character is slowly imploding. Here's another one. Um, your emotions are inappropriate to the situation. That This can be a sign of burnout, but it can also be a sign of character implosion. You should be properly rejoicing when people rejoice, mourning when people mourn. You should be able to celebrate someone else's success and not be jealous. Okay, I had to work on that a long time ago. Oh my gosh, that was so hard. Andy Stanley's book, Enemies of the Heart, really helped me with that. I would highly recommend it. And then you should feel compassion for someone when they're down and don't gloat or think they deserve it. Uh, the only way my character stays at this level is if I daily submit my heart and life fully to Christ as a Christian. Okay, so uh, if your emotions are inappropriate to the situation, like you're kind of gloating over people's success or you're nervous or jealous or all those things, pay attention. That's a, that's a character issue. Here's a third one. You have less and less grace to give. Okay, some of you are very successful who are listening to this podcast. And I think your success should be accompanied by a growing gratitude and a growing grace. When my character has been at its weakest, it's a sure sign that grace is in short supply. Uh, you have very high standards as a leader. I have very high standards for a leader, but those high standards should be accompanied by high levels of grace. On a spiritual level, grace runs out in your life when God runs out in your life. So if you need more grace, you need more God, and I need that infusion daily. Okay, number four. Your leadership has become about you. This is very, you know, this is something we talk about. Like, you know, this is the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. You go to my website. What's it called? It's called CarrieNewhoff.com, right? But I don't ultimately want my leadership to be about me. I want it to be about you. I want it to be about God. And if your leadership ends up becoming all about you, you've kind of stopped leading, right? It's all about you. And there are very successful large organizations, it turns out, that are built around the ego of a leader, and I don't want that to be the case. And so we are actually looking, we're thinking about a rebrand at some point. I've been working on this for a few years, unable to figure it out. But, you know, I want to see my team succeed. I want to see you succeed. I love what Bob Buford says, and I've kind of adopted this as a, a mantle for the next few years. 
I, I would love my fruit to grow on other people's trees. Isn't that a neat metaphor? It's like, no, push other people in the spotlight. That's what I try to do with this podcast. And I want to do more and more with my life. But don't make your leadership all about you. And I just know that's a tension to be managed. We live in an age where people tend to follow people, not institutions, right? People will follow uh, Transformation Church, but they're probably more engaged with Mike Todd personally, right? And so you have to you have to think about that and and then just make sure that your leadership is not all about you. And then number five, you keep justifying your bad actions and decisions. This is a real sign that your character is imploding. You know, I've heard leaders say it. I've probably said myself in bad moments, you know, if you had this much pressure in your life, you'd act this way too. Eh, nope, not good. How about this? Nobody understands how lonely I am. And you're using that to justify whatever you're drinking or whatever you're doing or whatever you're smoking or whatever you're, you know, you're, you're sinning on. It's like, nobody understands how hard this is. It's like, mm, no, I don't think so. And it's impossible for me not to be this way. My bad temperament, my bad mood, given everything I'm carrying when you get to that point where you're justifying your bad actions and decisions, that is a problem. And leaders who justify their bad behavior lose their ability to lead. So those are some signs that your character may be imploding, things to really pay attention to. Hey, I uh, wrote a post on this and I have thousands of posts actually, or a thousand, I don't know, on my website. If you want to check it out, it's at kerryneuhoff.com. Uh, I also send out a almost daily email to 80,000 leaders that just gives them a little nugget of some leadership goodness. And uh, if it can help you, you can go to kerrynewhoff.com forward slash email. Really excited to bring you Cal Newport next time. That was a very pivotal conversation. Pumped to be with you on this. Thanks so much for listening. And I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.